So I've chosen, as part of that, a look at Jonah for the next few weeks. Um, yes, Bible College is very useful, even for preparing messages for church. So if you can turn to Jonah, we're going to look at Jonah chapter 1 this morning. Some part of it. Jonah chapter 1. How are we going with finding Jonah? Is he deep in the belly of the whale at the moment or is he, uh, have you found him? Have you fished him up? Jonah chapter 1, we'll read from verse 1 to 5. <clears throat> now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. For the wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea and there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea, to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Let's, uh, let's pray before we uh, look into this message this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we can meet here this morning. We thank you for the, um, the blessings that you bestow upon us each day and we just uh, thank you now for the blessings of your word. The fact that we have it with us today, preserved for us, that we can rely on every word and that we can learn thereof and grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that your spirit would be once again, be our, that he would be our teacher, our guide, that he would lead us into your truth, that you'd use me as an instrument for that purpose. And I pray always the name of Jesus would be lifted up in this place and in our hearts. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I remember when I first became a Christian and I'd, I'd go into the, um, one of the, my favourite places was to go into the Word bookstore. You know, Word and Keswick and all those sort of places. And you know, when you first discover that sort of stuff, when you've, when you've been in the world and you discover all these wonderful things, they're all Christians. And you know, t I remember buying T-shirts. With big, you know, sayings on them and all, you know, it was really, really bold in those days. But I remember buying myself a little plaque um, that I, I thought was really nifty and it said, um, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. And I thought, that's really smart because that's going to get, you know, someone to look at that and they're going to say, your boss is Jewish? I thought he was Lebanese. And I, um, <clears throat> as I was looking at the, uh, the, the passage this morning, it occurred to me that... Um, I was thinking about Jesus' occupation. And I thought to myself, does it actually say in Scripture that Jesus was a carpenter? Does anyone have any Scripture verses that, that, that mention Jesus specifically being a carpenter? We know he was the son of a carpenter. We know Joseph was a carpenter. Um, but are we just assuming that Jesus was brought up in the, uh, you know, in the ways of his father, that his father would have taught him carpentry? And I found a verse. There is one verse. That mentions Jesus being a carpenter. And if you turn to Mark chapter 6, 
you find a passage there where Jesus is with his disciples and he decides to go back to his hometown to share the good news with the people that, you know, from the old hometown there and, you know, he he, uh, arrives at the synagogue and look what they say. Chapter 6, verse 1. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. And he went out from, from thence and came into his own country. That's his hometown. And his, disciples, uh, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, From whence had this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, even that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and of Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. They were offended that a carpenter had such knowledge. The question they had was, how did this guy get all this knowledge? I mean, surely he grew up among us. He couldn't have obtained all this knowledge and, and been such an eloquent speaker and and. It's, and, and perform these miracles. We know him. We know who he grew up with. We know his family. Now, there's no mention of, uh, of uh, Joseph here. So Joseph may have already passed on by this stage. <clears throat> but the interesting thing is that it says, he is not this, the carpenter. So we do know that Jesus was brought up in the occupation of his father. So Jesus followed his father, his earthly father, in his footsteps. Undoubtedly, we know that Jesus would have been trained from an early age. He would have watched his father and his father would have trained him in that artisan, in that, um, in those, uh, in that art. In fact, as I think about it more and more, <coughs> that's still, the, that's still the, uh, the same today. Most children end up following their parents to some extent or another in a similar or same occupation. Most people, especially in the poorer countries in the world, whose children don't go to school and those sorts of things, have to be trained in the, in the, uh, in the work that their parents do. So it's, it's inevitable. Most of those people work for themselves, to provide for themselves, so they train their children up in the same thing. And their children follow in the, parents, in the footsteps of their parents. But even in our, our affluent country where we have, you know, public schooling and all that sort of things, still a lot of, lot of children, a great percentage of them, actually follow the same thing their parents do, which is an amazing thing. <clears throat> so Jesus was about his earthly father's business from a young age. He followed in what his earthly father did. But we know also that Jesus was busy about his heavenly father's things as well. He wasn't just busy doing carpentry work. We know in Luke chapter 2, verse 48... 49, when, when, they, when the whole family had visited Jerusalem for the feast, they, um, that they lost Jesus along the way. They all started heading back. And instead of Jesus heading back with the rest of the family and cousins and all that sort of stuff, he stayed back in the temple. And when they went back to see him, uh, when they found him back in the temple, his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my father's business? So Jesus was busy about both his father's businesses. He was faithful in his earthly father's business, but also faithful in his heavenly father's business. He was being trained and brought up in both of those things. Jesus was obedient 
in whatever responsibility he was given, Jesus was faithful to carry out the instructions that he was given by his whichever father he had. There is much we can learn about Jesus' faithfulness, can't we? We can learn a lot about from Jesus because Jesus is our perfect example of things. When we look at Jesus, we know exactly what aim we should be striving for, what that mark is, what that goal is. Jesus is that perfect goal. But today, we look at Jonah. Not quite your perfect example of the obedient child. A little bit different. But an important illustration nonetheless. You see, God is able to teach us by giving us perfect examples. And God also teaches us very important lessons by giving us the opposite. God shows us the right thing to do by by teaching us the right way and the wrong way. So we learn from both. And Jonah is an example of the disobedient child. The child that is called by his father in heaven to go and do something, to go and join him in his work, and he disobeys willingly. So we'll be looking at the life of Jonah in the coming weeks. And what we're going to be praying for is the Lord is, will be teaching us certain life lessons about where we are. We're going to have an opportunity to compare ourselves to Jonah and his attitudes and his desires and the way and the things that he actually did with his relationship with God. Let's, go, let's start back at verse 1. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now Jonah, what do we know about Jonah? We don't know that much about Jonah. We don't know that much. We know, we know that he's a son of Amittai. Who's Amittai? Doesn't mean much to us these days. <coughs> but it may have been that Amittai was a well-recognised person in his, in his culture in those days. In his hometown, Amittai may have been a... Either it could have been a priest, could have been a, a very good, um, a, a well-known or recognised person. But we don't know much about him. What we do know is that Jonah ministered in the northern kingdom, what was called the northern kingdom of Israel. Do you remember Israel? They had a fight. Twelve brothers got together, had an argument, and they decided to split. Two tribes went south, and the rest of them went north. The ten tribes stayed north. And we had north Israel, and we had southern Judah. Okay, Now, Jonah was a prophet to the north, to those ten, what we call the ten tribes. And they were still around in those days. And the king at that time was called Jeroboam II. Okay? Now, in terms of Jonah, we don't know much about his life. There is no history here, but, except for this specific story here. But there is something that we can learn from this very first verse. And the, the thing that we need to we can learn from that is that we have we serve an amazing God. God is absolutely amazing. Because God knows his name is Jonah. God knows who his father is. God knew Jonah personally. And God is the same today. God knows your name. He knows where you were born. He knows where you live. He knows everything about you and some things that you don't know about yourself. And he takes a personal interest 
in his children. God knows everything about you and so much that he wants you to know more about yourself. We often can learn more about ourselves by getting to know God better than we get to know ourselves by looking at ourselves in the mirror or studying ourselves. God knows where you live. He knows your history. He knows your lineage. He takes a personal interest in your needs. And the Bible says that he personally directs our paths. He takes an interest in yours and my future. So much so that he has it planned out for us. <clears throat> Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, the whole earth, to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. God is seeking those whose heart is, is, is perfect towards him. In other words, people who love him, that he might support them, that he might show his strength through them. And we are those people. If you have put your faith in Christ this morning, you are one of those people that God is seeking to support and show his strength and power through. This is the story of our God today. He calls people personally by name. And he takes an interest in them. He wants their hearts. And he reveals his own. He knows his children. And he takes an interest in our welfare. But just like Jonah, he calls us to work. He doesn't just take an interest in you and say, you know, oh yeah, I wouldn't take an interest in you like, like a little pet and have no expectation of it. God, like his own son, and like Jonah here, expects us to work. He calls us to join him in his work. Just like Joseph had called Jesus from a young age to join him in that, in that role of being a carpenter, our Heavenly Father calls us from the first day that we give our hearts to him to join us in his work. What work? Oh, God's got a huge amount of work in progress at the moment. I know most of us who are, who are involved in business sometimes feel as if the work never ends. God's got an, an immense amount of work going on all over the place. Our, our Heavenly Father's business is the biggest business you could ever imagine. And it's business, it's core business is for God to reach out to people to make them his children. That's a huge business. And there's a great responsibility there. And he calls us to join him in that. He calls us into the fray. He calls us to fight alongside him. He goes head on into the battle. And he calls us to join him in that fight. He expects us to obey. Jonah was not willing to obey. And today we're going to be looking at why. And hopefully we can learn from Jonah's mistake. Or Jonah's problem that he had. And take the opportunity to compare ourselves to Jonah and see whether we have fallen into the same trap as him. So God expects his children to be about his business. The question for us today is, are we about our Heavenly Father's business? Okay. Verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Just as Jonah was called to not only be a prophet to the northern kingdom, he was specifically called to minister to the Ninevites. 
Now, I want you to, to know something. You and I have a general calling in life. God calls us to be the lights in this world, to be the salt of the earth. God calls us to be ambassadors for him. But then again, for each and every one of us, God calls us to do specific jobs. You see, God has gifted each of us differently. God has given each of us different abilities and placed us in different circumstances and expects to use us in the circumstances that he has placed us in. Now, your circumstances differ to my circumstances. The people you know are different to the people that I know. Your work is different than my work. The places you go, the people you see, the time you spend is different one to another. So God expects each of us, with the gifts that he's given us and the circumstances that we see around us, to work in those circumstances. And he calls us to specific jobs. God uses us. God expects us to be obedient in where we find ourselves. And so it is that God uses his children to reach the world for him. God uses us to reach the world. An amazing thought when you think about it. The responsibility we have to reach the world. We are what God uses to show his character. We are those people. The Bible says that we are the body of Christ and God exhibits to the world his character, his desires, his heart through us. So God called Jonah to go to Nineveh to cry against it, for their wickedness had come up before him. God called Jonah to travel to the city of Nineveh to cry out against it, to tell them to repent because God was about to destroy them completely the same way he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God was about to literally rain fire down upon them and destroy them and obliterate them from off the face of the earth. So Jonah simply had to do two things, didn't he? Say, yes, Lord, and then start walking to Nineveh. That's what he had to do. But there's a price to pay, isn't there? There's a price to pay from getting up out of your place, getting up from your bed, from your chair, or whatever it is you're comfortable, from, the, from your current situation, and go to move to go to where God wants you to go. The important lesson for us here is that if God calls you and me to enter into his work, it's going to cost us. It'll cost you. It has to cost you. To work requires to sacrifice something else, doesn't it? For those of you who work, you know that you'd rather be doing something else most of the time. So when we are called to work, whether it's paid work, work around the house, studying for an education, ministering in church, there are other things that we need to sacrifice, to put behind. Things that are more pleasurable and more, um, more easy. God calls us to put those things behind us and to get about the work. It costs us something and probably many things. But work is necessary. If no one works, no one eats. We cannot live if we don't work. 
And this is true of the spiritual world as well. The choice really is yours and ours. You can choose not to work, can you not? You can choose to sleep all day. But what are you going to achieve in life if you sleep all day? Not very much. You'll always be dependent upon other people to feed you. And this is, unfortunately, the story of too many Christians in our society. Too many Christians are actually more than happy to sleep within themselves in their spiritual walk, to put all that work behind them in terms of studying God's word, being in God's presence, ministering to other people's needs, and are more than happy just to take and take and take and take. Ever seen those people that are put on so much weight they can't get up off their bed? There are plenty of Christians like that. Who cannot move. Who are immobilised by being in a state of slumber and laziness their whole lives. They find it difficult to raise their little pinky in order to serve someone else. Because they're too busy with everyone serving them. The choice is ours and yours, mine and yours. The choice to relax is ours. But the end result will depend on the decisions that you have made in your life. The choice that you make today will determine not only your eternal reward in heaven and whether one day you will stand before him ashamed or whether you will stand before him with a smile on your face because he's going to say, well done. But your faithfulness will determine the eternal destiny of other people around you. You see, God has chosen to connect each of us in more than just one way. No one is an island here. You have an influence over the people around you. And if you choose to neglect that influence in your life and think that you are the only person you affect, then think again. Because you affect many people around you. Your faithfulness or your slackness in life will change the lives of other people who are watching you. Will change them. God had called Jonah to make a difference in the lives of the Ninevites. The Ninevites were steeped in sin. Their sin was so bad that God was about to wipe them away. And God was calling Jonah to say, go and make a difference to those people over there. Go and talk to them and let them know what I want them to know. He was called to make a difference. A difference that would have had eternal consequences to the lives of those people there. Not just temporal, but eternal. Your job, my job as believers, if we are believers, if we are really the children of God, is no less important than Jonah's task was. Do you think Jonah had a more important job than you and I? Let me answer that question right now. The answer is no. You and I have just as important a job in our lives, even though you may think of yourself as insignificant, as not having what it takes to be a, a person to reach out to the world, to do God's work. You know something? God doesn't think that. God actually thinks you're special. 
God actually took the time out and, took, and put the effort in to give you gifts. The real question is whether you're happy to use them for his service or whether you're going to put them away in a closet somewhere only to be revealed at the end of days when you stand before him and God says, hang on, what about that thing that I gave you all those years ago? What have you done with that? God continues to work today the same way he worked in Jonah's days. The difference is that we are the Jonahs of our day. You and I are Jonah in the midst of a sinful world that is coming near its end and about to be destroyed. God has given us a message to share, a message to live, an example to be. And God continues to work and expect his children to actually follow him in his work. And God works the same way today as in Jonah's day because God holds the world still accountable for their sin, both corporately and personally. God holds each individual responsible for their sin, but also he holds cities and nations responsible for their sin. Still the same way he did then. God held Nineveh responsible for their sin. Their sin had reached such a stage that unless they repented, God would destroy them completely. History tells us that the Assyrians were so brutal, were so evil, that when they went and, and, and conquered a particular city, they would pile, they'd chop the heads off their victims and pile them up in pyramids in front of their towns. They would flay, they would skin people alive. Skin people alive. I won't go into the other things they used to do. Needless to say, they savagely destroyed all who opposed them. Not just men, but women and children in the most gruesome of ways. God held them accountable to that, for what they were doing. And God said to Jonah, tell them to repent and stop that. Otherwise, I'm going to do to them what I did to Sodom and Gomorrah. God still judges the nations in the same way today. If a nation reaches a certain critical point, and we don't know what that point is, but God does, God will destroy that nation. And why does God do it? Why does God work in that way? Well, the basic answer to that is God restricts evil in the world. God wants to restrict the amount of evil in the world and God plays a part in that and he has always played a part in that. Because evil spreads like a cancer. Evil starts off small, looks a bit sweet, and then gets worse and worse and worse and more perverse and more perverse. And pretty soon man can't control himself into the, how deep he goes into it. Wonderful passage this morning that was read for us. That shows you the depths that men will go to to, to go and, and to be satisfied by their sin. So sin spreads. It catches. Let me give an example. Gossip. Hmm? Gossip is a sin. How easy does gossip catch? Like wildfire. It doesn't take much 
to continue and to grow and to, and to grow worse and worse. <clears throat> An example of how God deals with nations and how God restricts evil is Noah. What he did with Noah. The whole world had become corrupted, except for one family. So God decides to destroy the whole world. To start again. God judges nations that persist in evil practices and abominable customs. This has occurred, if you look at history, it's occurred over and over again. Babylon, Persia, communist Russia is also a good one. If any of you have read any of Stalin's comments about God and what he, what he felt about God and the arrogance that he had towards religion and faith, interesting to see how, how God judged communism. But Christians have an obligation in our evil societies to be lights, to be salt, to go against the flow and to tell people this is not right. problem is that we decide to run. Oftentimes, we don't go in the direction God wants us to go. It's easier going in the direction everyone else is going. Because you know something? To walk in the opposite direction is a bit painful sometimes. It means sticking your neck out. It means possibly getting hurt. Possibly being ridiculed. Jonah decided to run. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Why did Jonah run? Was he afraid? Maybe he'd heard about all these nasty things that the, uh, the Assyrians were doing. Was he afraid? Well, the real answer actually... He's given at the end of the book. Turn to Jonah chapter 4. We find the reason that Jonah ran in chapter 4. Look at verse 2. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Yeah, Jonah had an argument with God while he was still in Israel. Had an argument. Why do you want me to go there? Haven't you seen what those people are doing over there? Had an argument with God. Didn't like what God wanted him to do. Didn't like God's response. So he ran away to Tarshish. And his reason for running away was he knew that God was gracious and merciful. So he knew that if the people repented when he went, that God would not destroy them. So he really ran away from Nineveh because deep down... He wanted God to destroy them. He hated them. He wanted all of God's wrath upon them. He did not want to be the cause of them to be shown mercy and to be forgiven. 
He saw the wickedness that they were capable of and he couldn't stand the thought of God sparing them and letting them go. He wanted them to get everything they deserved. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a Nineveh in your life at the moment? Is there someone who's been so bad and nasty to you who God may be calling you to be a witness to and share things with that you think there's no way I'm going to go and talk to that person. You know something? God, I'm going to let you deal with them. What does that reveal about your heart? Are there certain groups of people who are Ninevites to us? Who are anathema? who we can't go and share the gospel with. They're just too far gone. Do you have an innovator in your life right now? God could be asking you to warn a certain person, to rescue them from an evil custom, a bad habit, a dangerous dangerous path that they're on. Have you given up on, on someone? Have you given up and said, that's it? That person is off my list. I'm not going to spend any more time with that person. They just don't want to listen. Have you been wronged by someone so bad that you can't forgive them and you wish that God would punish them for their sin? Brethren, we should be representative of better things if there are. We should represent higher things, more noble things, We should represent the heart of our precious Saviour who while on a cross being crucified was saying, Father, forgive them. A heart that blesses blesses its enemies and doesn't curse. A heart that does good to those who do bad in return. A heart of hope, grace, ready to forgive, ready to restore Is this the story of my heart today? Is this the story of your heart today? Or are we quick to cut people down when they make a mistake? How much grace, how much room do we allow in our heart for grace, for mercy, for forgiveness? If there are any people that God has called you to share the truth with and you can't obey the Lord because of your feelings, then pray and ask God to give you the grace to reach that person. To give you a heart like Jesus. Don't let your emotions cloud your judgment, to cloud your spiritual sight. See, emotions are a double-edged sword. Emotions can be good. I mean, God made us emotional creatures. But you know something? Sometimes our emotions run away with us. Our emotions often lead us astray from the truth. They distract us from the right path. Our emotions are not based on truth, but often are the result of a fallen world's trickery and the devil's snares. And when our emotions and our hearts begin to take hold, they take hold of our heads and we, they, we shut our spiritual eyes and we only see with our natural eyes and we become no better than the world around us. 
We should always be mindful of our emotions. We should be careful that our emotions aren't steering us in the wrong direction. The devil's, one of the devil's favourite tools is to trap, your, trap you in your emotions, to get you either upset about something, and oftentimes without real reason, and then run in a particular direction, away from reconciliation, from service, from love, from all those things that God has called us to be. Oftentimes we allow our emotions to destroy the very things that God is building in our lives. But we have been called to higher things. Jonah's hatred for the Ninevites caused him to run the other way. Caused him to disobey. The Bible says that we are depressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. There is a high mark that God has called us to. Let's not stay down there. Let's not be content with the mud and the slop of the pigs. And mind you, Jonah didn't run haphazardly. He just didn't run any, any direction. Jonah planned his trip. He walked, or he went from his hometown in the north down to Joppa, which is on the coast, and Joppa was a, a port that had really big ships, that had ships good enough to sail right across the Mediterranean, not just along the coast. Because you know where you wanted to go? Tarshish. A place that we don't even know exactly where it is. It could have been as far away as Spain or England. That's a trip <laughs> in those days. But it says, it's interesting because in verse 3 it says, And Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And then he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it. It reminds you of those people when the Lord comes back and they're hiding under the rocks. They, they say, rocks fall on us because we don't want to see the face of him. And verse 5 it says, The mariners were afraid and they cried to every man unto their God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship of the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. Twice the scriptures say that he went down into the ship. God doesn't normally repeat himself too often, but when he does, he's making a very, very important point here that Jonah was going down. He was hiding. What was he doing in the ship? Why was he in the top of the top deck with the rest of the people, maybe helping out or doing something? Why wasn't he sunbaking or something like that? I don't know. He was down in the sides of the ship where people couldn't even find him. The fact of the matter is, he was trying to hide from God. Foolish man. He probably thought to himself, if I'm on the, if I'm on the, the, you know, the, the top, if I'm on the deck, God's going to see me from heaven. But if I'm underneath, if I'm in the darkness, God can't see me over there. He won't notice me because I'm going to be so far away. In this little ship, God's not going to take notice. He went in the darkest, most remote place he could go. And God starts whipping up the sea with a wind. God knew where he was. God always knows where, where people are. In verse 4 it says, But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken, or likely to be broken. 
Regardless of where you are today, regardless of where you try to hide from God, He always knows where you are. He always knows what you're doing. He knows everything about you and there is not a place that you can go and hide and, 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 and be out of His presence. And the amazing thing is that God has at his disposal all the powers of nature and all the, all the things of the universe to get you to do what he wants you to do. God can move heaven and earth to get his child to, to do what he wants them to do. God can and does move heaven and earth. And in Jonah's case... He moved the wind and the seas to stir them up to achieve his purposes. And it says in verse 5, The mariners were afraid, and they cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship, that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down in the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. The mariners were afraid, and rightly so. They were people who knew the weather. They knew that the, the storm was strong enough to break their ship. And there probably weren't too many uh, lifeboats attached to that particular ship in those days. If the ship broke, that was it. No, no distress beacon. No helicopter going to be flying over to pick you up. The men feared. And it says they cried every man unto his God and they threw as much stuff as they could overboard so the ship was lighter. Because of their fear, the men turned to their gods who were no gods at all, but just imitations of God. In addition to seeking their God, they cast off as much as they could. That a, is, a, is a great lesson in that little verse there. Because that's what people in religions do all the time in the world. When I think about religions such as Buddhism and the gurus in India, and I think about Gnosticism and those sorts, of, those sorts of things. In fact, most religions, most religions tell you to cast off as much of your earthly things, okay, if you want to be religious and get to heaven, okay, so you're light enough that, that, that you can somehow float up there. Men divest themselves or, or throw away their earthly interests Okay, They try to simplify their lives. They try to, to be as spiritual as they possibly can in the hope that if they haven't got too many earthly attachments that they'll go up rather than be trapped down. Salvation is sought in all religions in the world by casting off earthly attachments and desires and that by somehow... Putting those things aside and, and living a simple, simple life, okay? not having money, not having a house, not having whatever it is, the more or the less of those things you have in your life, the more holy you are. That if they cast off all those earthly attachments, then they, they will somehow be light enough to reach heaven. The sailors were afraid of their lives. And they were casting out as much stuff as they could. They wanted to make the ship lighter. They were calling on their gods to save them. And while they were fearing for their lives, Jonah was sleeping downstairs. Not even aware of what was going on upstairs. Of the commotion 
He would have heard. I'm sure he would have heard them screaming and pulling up stuff and, and throwing stuff overboard. But he, he was fast asleep. Jonah, in the midst of his, of his uh, disobedience, was fast asleep downstairs. You know something, I, I, I think about that specific thing there and how, how he was asleep in the midst of a storm. <clears throat> I think to myself, how hard running from the, how hard a work running from the Lord must be. It must wear you out. I think Jonah was pretty much run, worn out already. By the time he went down to Joppa, he would have been probably exhausted because running from God is a hard job. And he was probably pretty tired at that stage. Many Christians are guilty of running from the Lord. And it's not easy running from the Lord. Because he's always right behind. He never lose track. He doesn't lose track of you. It's not, it's not as if you can say, if I run faster today, I'll be you know, at least one kilometre ahead of him and I can slow down a little bit. God is always right there. And there, and there, and there. Many Christians are guilty of running away from God and wearing themselves out doing it. They wear themselves out to not do what the Lord has called them to do. And, and, and I see this often in Christian lives, that the Christians who are running away from God, who don't do the things he has called them to do, are often the most worn out and unhappy people in the world. Unhappy. Terrible. Everything, nothing goes right for them. Too many problems in life. They can't deal with it. Why? Because you're running away from God and you can't run. Jonah ran. Jonah ran for very selfish purposes. He ran for his own hatred. He ran to satisfy his own desires. And unfortunately, most Christians run away for the very same thing. The undeniable fact of the matter is that Jonah's only concern while he was deep in the bowels of the ship was for himself and only for himself. He was simply content to be away from God's presence and be alone. That his choice meant that the lives of others were put at risk. Sleeping Christians, sleeping Christians or selfish Christians are a danger to the world and a danger to their brethren. They put other people at risk. Sleeping Christians have an ability to help but are in most cases totally unaware of what's going on around them. Instead of being used by God to transform the world, they're too busy running after their own lusts and their own, their own feelings and emotions. They exhaust themselves running from God and they become altogether unprofitable. Is this your story? Have you been called to service but have found a convenient place to hide? hoping that God won't wake you up from your sleep. Then know this, that while you sleep, while you are comfortable, there are those who have forsaken comfort and are serving the Lord. There are those who are putting their lives at risk to serve him and to reach other people. Then there are those that are perishing because we are too lazy 
to talk to them. Because we're too comfortable. And while they're perishing, we're too busy about our own things. There are those who are sliding down a slippery slope and don't know how to get off. They have absolutely no idea which way to turn as they, their life slides down into oblivion. And we're too busy running after our own lusts and asleep in the world. Only you and I can tell them what they need to hear. That's it. It's you and me. We're the only ones that have the message. We're the only ones who can tell them what they need to hear. And hey, if you tell them and they don't want to hear, then you've at least done your part. But there is someone, either in here or out there, that needs to hear something from you. God is asking you, each and every one of you, to say something. And you know in your heart probably who that is and what that is. But only you can say it. Other people can't say it for you. The question then is, will you obey or are you asleep to all the commotion and all the distress that's happening around us? See, God doesn't sleep. God's still working. The question is, how many of his children are asleep? Even now, the Lord may be whipping up a storm in your heart and in your mind. He might be trying to get your attention to do the very thing that he's asked you to do. Maybe he's asked you many times to do it. And you've said to him, no, every time. Lord, I'm too tired. I'm too busy. God doesn't want you to sleep anymore. He wants you to not only be awake, but to be walking in the light. Get up from, out from the bottom of that ship and get into the light. There's no point hiding from God. Your time isn't finished yet. There is still something for you and I to do that God wants us to do. Take a risk. Work again for your king. Don't you hear the alarm bells ringing all around you? Most of us wake up in the morning with an alarm bell that goes off next to our bed. Do you hear the alarm bells all around? There are alarms ringing everywhere. Have we closed our ears to those bells and to the screams of people that are falling into an eternity? There is a catastrophe that, that will befall this world very shortly. An absolute catastrophe. There is a judgment that will come for each and every soul that slips into the darkness of death. Are you too comfortable in the shade? And where you're lying to reach them. Are you willing to lift up your hand? To say something? Are you too comfortable in the shade while the world dies in the night? What honour is there in declaring that you slept through most of your life when you stand before him one day? Jonah chose to run and to hide down in the bowels of the ship. 
headed the other way. But Jonah knew deep down, and so do you, that God can and will shake you one day. He'll shake you out of your sleep. Why wait? Why not answer the call today? Why not ask, all right, what do I do? What do you want me to do, Lord? And make yourself available to him. How long will you make him wait for? He hasn't forgotten you. He'll make you obedient. Even if it costs the lives of people around you, he will make you obedient. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5 says, Ye are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Are you asleep at the moment? If you are asleep, then rouse yourself from your slumber. Make a commitment to walk the walk and to answer God's calling in your life. Doesn't matter what he has called you to do. Doesn't matter how difficult it seems if it, if it lines up with the word of God. If it lines up and, it, and, it, and God is calling you to do something, then do it. Don't regret it 10 years or 15 years on the track that you didn't do something. God calls us to stay alert, to stay awake, to live in the light. And this morning, if you're not saved, if you don't know that God has called you to an eternal relationship with him, then stop running. If God has called you to, to be his child, and that's what God's business is about, to, to, to adopt children into his family, then stop running. If you are asleep and you are unsaved, then you aren't just asleep, but dead in your sins. Dead. Turn to God. Walk in the light so that you may become also a child of the day and then follow him with all your heart. Jonah decided to run. Jonah fell asleep. Let's do the exact opposite today. Let's walk where God wants us to walk and be awake and see what's going on around us. God bless you.